0: One of the reasons that we've found success on our go-to-market and others is know your customer and the segmentation.
1: Welcome to the SMB Tech Innovators podcast powered by Gusto. On this show, we explore the intersection of fintech, vertical SaaS, and how software combats the rising complexity of running a business. Our goal is to share stories, advice, and best practices from the leaders and investors behind today's cutting-edge platforms. Here's your host, Shamrat Niyoki.
2: On this episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, my guest is Human Radvar, co-founder and CEO of Collective. Human is a serial entrepreneur and investor. He co-founded Collective alongside Boo Kanter and Boo Akay to support the largest and fastest growing class of entrepreneurs in the world businesses of one woman welcome to the show thanks for having me excited let's go we've known each other for some time and i think i did my best job trying to introduce you there's so much more to the story i know you have a very diverse background and i don't want to miss anything so maybe you can tell a little about how you founded collective and your journey to build this amazing new company
0: yeah so collective is an interesting company because for me and my co-founders it started with a personal passion Often you hear people say, start something that you're really excited about. Believe it or not, it's actually harder than you think, right? Because entrepreneurs often have many ideas and are excited about many things. In this case, it not only came from that passion point, but our background. So my co-founders and I are all immigrants. My co-founder, U is a more recent immigrant. So he's from Turkey alongside Boo. who had been freelancing, actually. He was one of the designers for Udemy. So that company had gone public, meeting box. And because he was an immigrant, he was often you know, on contract, right? Because it was an easier mechanism to do that. And he had lost a lot of money in taxes. Not surprisingly, the US system for taxes is very complex in comparison to many places in the world. And so he was frustrated about all the different things that he needed to learn in order to optimize his business. Because again, as a freelancer, you actually are a business. And so that's what drew him to the problem. On my end, I had been, at the time I was leading investments at Expa we build and invest in companies. I'd been focused for years on being a founder because I had founded a company in Salt Oracle helping founders. And while that was a huge joy, I'm still a venture partner expo, I had missed working with the team. I missed having a platform. And I'd been exploring this area around trying to help the largest group of founders. And you know this 36% of people actually think 37% are self-employed and it was growing very quickly. So I was approaching it from that angle, and when Ooh and I started talking, I started thinking to myself about my family situation. So when we immigrated, and I immigrated when I was much younger, my parents, after getting divorced, my mother had her own practice, my dad has her own practice. And as a young kid, you don't think of a physician business, right? You just, it's just not in your head, right? But they were, you know, they have to make the same choices that businesses like Collective have to make, businesses like us have to make. How do I form my entity? How do I keep my books in order? How do I do taxes? And so on and so forth. And they were making those choices. And one choice formation my mom made was a soul prop. And then my father, he was an S-corp. That may seem like a very small choice. Fast forward that over 30 years, you know, my father saved $600,000 in taxes that my mom didn't. Now, when you're talking about physicians practicing in Pennsylvania, that's a pretty large amount of money. And I'm not talking about interest. I'm not talking about appreciation. I'm just talking about sure dollars. And so a choice in your compliance and a choice in how you execute that compliance is really material. And so I think all of us were pretty passionate about this idea that much like Amazon created this abstraction where developers know how to think about boxes and racking things and it freed up a whole level of innovation. Could we free people to focus on their passion and not their paperwork by abstracting you know, the formation, the bookkeeping the account, all these things that are necessary but not sufficient for a basis that had made it difficult for Ooh, made it difficult for my parents. So many immigrants come to this country to start their businesses, realize their dreams, who are really, really great at what they're doing. And of course, that applies to so many more people, not just
2: immigrants. So that was the origin story. Let's talk about this market because we have been spending some time on it. Obviously, it comes from a very personal place. As I understand it, this is this vertical of entrepreneurs, which has a lot of different subsets. And As I've learned about this market, you know, this group, 59 million people has recently received sort of a bigger spotlight and with an increased attention to sort of serving building software for these markets. And so it would be helpful to understand what's happening in this market. Like why now? I mean, this could have existed 10 years ago. I mean, talking about your parents, they've been dealing with this for decades now. Like what's happening? Why is there all of a sudden attention to this businesses of one sort of market?
0: It's a great question. I think there's a confluence of a number of factors. So to your point, this isn't a new market. And I think that's what makes it so exciting in some ways is that it's a large market that in some ways has been ignored or underserved by so many different companies, right? We talk about SMB so much, but this is the micro SMBs, these are the smallest of SMBs. And even SMB, as you know better than me, you know, is a large player in the ecosystem, only in recent years you were able to attack it. So I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that people are moving online, people are using mobile, and new companies now had channels by which they could go direct to these smaller businesses versus traditionally in software you would go enterprise because you could hire a salesperson, it was easier, you could call them, and the ACVs were so big that it was worth it, right? So I think the same forces that make SMB in general open up are making this accessible. Moreover, I think from an attention perspective, companies like Uber, which I had the opportunity to invest in or Convoy or others, they're starting to shed light in this whole idea of these business to one, whether it's the gig workers, right? That you're about working on Uber, DoorDash, Postmates, freelancers, because there's new marketplaces that are opening up or marketplaces that have developed and become prominent. You have Upwork being public, Fiverr being public, but the verticals are opening up too, right? You have all kinds of different segments. We have a partner Graphite, which is like high-end freelancers, developers that don't believe are being full-blown Upwork, right? And so I think there's just a lot more abilities to address them, to attack them. And then there's a discussion as a result, because there's different markets being cracked in different ways through marketplaces. So it's exciting. And I think the newest discussion is around this concept of like the passion economy, the creator economy is So it's great for us because I think there's so many different lenses by which to view this massive, massive growing population. And I think the thing that excites us most is not just that they're the largest group of founders, but if you look at the trend line, it could be the largest group of workers in the next 10 years if the trends continue. And what are we
2: going to do when one out of two people are self-employed if this trend persists? It's a pretty huge problem set. You mentioned creators. I've heard creators. I've heard the term freelancers. I'm sure you have a very specific way to sort of think about this market, because it seems like there are different companies that are looking at the market in very specific ways. How do you see this market overall? I know you use this term businesses of one, but how do you think about the needs of these very specific sub markets within these businesses of one?
0: I'll give you kind of a historical lens. So we struggled with this as well when we started the company. How do you categorize such a large segment Right, of folks, because the common thing is that there's one person, right? And so we actually started by offering our platform to freelancers, right? But what we found through research and also through being in, live in the market is there's a huge population that don't self identify as freelancers. So I'll give you some simple examples that probably seem intuitive to you. Like a realtor who's been working for 15 years selling in the Bay Area is not going to identify with a product that's catered to freelancers a psychiatrist with my mom. Even though definitionally, if you look at the term, what it means, freelance comes actually from the medieval days. Like it's a freelance. Like that is actually what they're doing. They don't identify with that. They identify with the name of their profession. And so what we did, and people are using this term and we encourage them to use it. It's fine. But we said, what's a term that can encapsulate freelancers, professionals who go by their brand name, even gig workers, right? Who Sometimes do use that term gig worker, sometimes they don't. So that's where we came to business one, because so look, these guys are businesses, but the distinguishing feature is that there's only one person, right? Like they don't even think just small business. Sometimes if they go for like small business products, they think, oh, wow, that's too big for me. I can't afford that. That not cater to me. So that's why we created the term and hopefully it helps the industry move forward in some way. But that, that we think of is almost, think of it at the top. When we say self-employed 36%, The businesses of one is what we call it. Now, within that, you have sub-segments. So for example, creators, I think is a term that's growing in popularity, right? There is this idea of a passion economy that's newer. And I think there's a lot of people who have different terms around that. But for us, creators are people who go online, are using platforms like Instagram, YouTube, even writing platforms like Substack, and they're creating content. And that's become, if not all of their, Driver income, it's it's the largest driver income, and that's like the subset. But I think even that term, I'll bet you money in the next five years is going to get overloaded because there's also creatives like designers. As people are expanding and contracting, like is a designer a creator or creative? And then what's the distinction between that? So I think this conversation is going to continue as these newer segments arise and also start overlapping with older segments. But
2: that's how we think about at least to start. I know you are an investor. I know you have been investing in the past. I imagine when you were raising capital, I can imagine that there's very small ACVs, literally businesses of one. Was this a struggle for you? Like when you were going out raising money in the market, was there confusion related to that? And how did you kind of break through? I know this is a large population, but it's hard to acquire customers and given that you know, as you... Tell the story about the real estate agents and your mom. Like it's hard to kind of capture that mention because they might not resonate with the specific use case that you're ultimately addressing. So can you talk about what you learned in the when you're raising capital? Yeah. So I think you're
0: asking a lot of the right questions that investors early on and to this day still are curious about. Right. So business of one. If you're going to look at investor market, a lot of investors come from different angles. Some are enterprise. There now is a growing obviously segment who has a lot of experience because of companies like Gusto, who've been successful, they now call themselves, they have SMB experience. And then there's these consumer guys. There is very few who actually have multiple investments in our category, surprisingly, because we're sitting 37 million people. So sometimes you'll get an investor with a consumer background and they'll have enough experience that they're like, Hey, I think I understand where we're going or an SMB person. And so they'll take patterns and data that they see in those segments. And attribute positive or potentially negative trends to you. So an example would be, today, when you look at SMB, one of the concerns people have is is churn, right? So these businesses are going out of business all the time. They're not stable. And if you get small and you think about consumer, consumer products that are subscription are often characterized by high churn. So that doesn't mean the business doesn't work, right? It just means that when you're, you have to be very tight on your go-to-market and your service model, because typically like, for example, we have a company current at Expo, right? It's one of the largest neobanks. You have to have a very tight go to market where the CAC is low. So customer acquisition costs. And so you're thinking in things like 40 to $60 versus like $500 or $600. Whereas like an enterprise side, you know, they don't even talk about CAC. But like, if you were to, you know, actually talk about it, they don't care. Pay $10,000, right? You have a sales team of people making you know, $300, $400 grand to go acquire customers. That's because those lifetime values on enterprise are so absurd that you can afford that and that they don't also churn. It was surprising to me that ended up being a mistake. So in our segment, what we're seeing is these businesses don't fail. They don't fail at the rate that people think. So when we look at it right now, we did a study and and it's a couple of months ago, maybe almost a year, but on our population, less than 2% of all the businesses that have become collective members have actually failed. And so that was not intuitive to us. And so we don't have that churn because we don't have the churn, our lifetime value is higher. So we charge $299 per month and that gets a you know, call $3,500 per year. But again, if they're staying with us and they're not failing, it's actually, you know, a fairly large LTV and AC, which means we can pay not $50, but on the magnitude of $1,000 plus, you know, when we're thinking about acquiring customers. So that puts us in a very different category from a go-to-market perspective. So, Again, all of these things we learned in hindsight, but when you're pitching at the seed round, those were definitely questions that were asked. And the way we responded to them, I think at the time, I have a go-to-market background. My first company, I had a freemium model. So I think people gave me personally some credit for exploring that. But the way we answer it today is very different than the way that we would have answered it at that time, just given the data that we're seeing.
2: What has been effective? I mean, if we have a lot of listeners here that are small businesses, maybe not at the micro SMB, but we do have listeners that are exploring new ventures in the micro SMB space. What has been really critical for you that you've really had to build a sort of a flywheel around?
0: So look, we're a new company. Our brand launched two years ago to the public, right? So I think it's September, October of twenty twenty. Because of that, not surprising some of the quote unquote classic channels we implement, Facebook, Instagram, Google, and there are a lot of strategies that we employ there that we can talk about that are more specific, right? So I think you still have your brain butter. I do think there was a massive dislocation in the ecosystem when Apple made the changes to iOS last year. Facebook and Instagram really, I hesitate to say, but effectively stopped working for everybody. You know, the cost for acquisition skyrocketed because of the tracking changes. So that really hurt a lot of people, not just in SMB, but across the board, e-commerce, fintech. I mean, there was two platforms that one used Google and Facebook. So that's there. The other ones that I would say work for us as well, content and particular webinars. So what we found is because educating, giving to the community as a means of attracting attention and then showing them the value of an S-Corp, the value of the tax savings, how to do it, then they can say, hey, do I want to do this on my own? Or do I want to do this with a partner? And so that education and that gift actually becomes a flywheel for growth. And then referral, referrals become one of
2: our biggest channels. I was in New York recently and I saw a collective ad on the subway. Where's my picture? (laughs) Yeah, I I do. I will send you the picture. I'll actually pull it up here in a second. But what are you experimenting there? I mean, given the low ACV, I mean, New York, I have to imagine, has probably the largest population of businesses of one, but I could be wrong there. But greater is great. Obviously, a lot of various professions, they're going solo but that's pretty bold. Tell us about what you're experimenting there.
0: Yeah. So when we started, we were in one state, we're in California. And when you're doing a go to market that's state specific, if you're looking at online channels, you have to do state level targeting. It's always more inefficient and it's more lossy, right? When we started expanding, we got to 11 states. So earlier this year, we were actually only in 11 states, which again, if you want to use online channels doing state level targeting, you have lossiness. So what I mean by that, They'll Google and Facebook, while excellent channels, like they do have some inefficiency. Sometimes they think someone in like some IP is in a state. They're not. People will apply regardless because they the word of mouth. And so what we found is, you know, we had a lot of so-called runoff that we were missing because people were in other states. Actually, recently we ended up, and it was only in this quarter, we're opening up to all 50 states. So because of that, it opens up our go-to market, which we've mentioned earlier, and we can try other channels that maybe aren't quite as efficient when doing state level or even DMA, like a city specific level channel. And New York was one of them. And we could test different channels. So for example, podcasting. Podcasting isn't like other online channels yet. Probably will be where you have like a really great programmatic, tested, easy way to do it. So you can do programmatic advertising. That has a disadvantage because you have to really play with it, right? You have to test different shows. You have to work with agencies. It's like OG, the way we used to do it when digital media started. That's more work. But it also means you can arbitrage that channel better than programmatic. It's not like this perfect market. You can do the same thing with like you could do television. We could just buy a run of ads across fifty states, right? Like the classic example is like My Pillow on Fox, right? The guy just buys the run of ads at a certain hour. He doesn't care what state it is, and that's a huge deal actually. That changes things. And so we're trying new channels, and then of course we're looking at outdoor as a channel. Like, does it increase brand awareness lift? And then you just map that to you know online, right? So do our CTRs improve if we launch this outdoor campaign first, right? And what's that math look like? It's incredibly hard to do attribution. It's still something even Google hasn't solved, but we're testing everything now that we're in these 50 states. And New York, to your point, is going to be massive. I mean, the number of calls that we had is absurd. It's just like absurd for New York because I mean, it's a huge city. And so We're excited about it. We're really excited about it. And
2: that added, we get a response. I just pulled it up. You design, we calculate, collective. It's very elegant. I'll send you a picture. I was going to share my screen. We're testing it everywhere.
0: And I think that's critical when you want to go to market with something like this. We look at this category as a prosumer, right? So in our case, we have retention that looks more like actually a really nice SMB or even enterprise. That's the category. We have to go to market more like a consumer because they're one person, they're mobile, they're running around, they're making decisions. So that pro-super category, you really have to understand the channels that classically were dominated or are dominated by
2: these consumer marketers. Just to switch gears, I mean, you know, you mentioned your price is 2 dollars a month. Was that sort of shocking for your customers to say, hey, here's this new service that we could pay for that really does all of the things that happen in the back office plus more I imagine going to thinking about ACV and expansion and finding more ways to monetize, do you feel pressure to increase the price points or are you already getting pushed back for your customers or do your customers sort of see that value because of what they were doing before in the past? So it depends on the
0: segmentation, like most companies. And again, I've been an investor, I've built a couple of companies at this point. Pricing is always one of those really interesting things that you have to do because there are Ways to determine pricing that are tried and true, but they tend to perform better when you have a lot of scale. So when you have subscale, especially when you're in a new industry, you have to be more experimental in a way that relies on, I would say, some pretty big assumptions. So we said we're going to start at a lower price point than that. And then we're going to see what the cap looks like, what the LTV looks like, what the margin looks like. And then once we benchmarked it and we've seen how the customer reacts, we could decide how to raise it. And so over time, we've kind of changed the price, but we've been adding value as well along the way. And so you just had to be very experimental. So the supposition when we started was, will people pay a subscription? That was actually a pretty niche statement, right? Do they want all-in-one? Like if we bundle these things, like I remember early days, we didn't have the opportunity to work directly with Gusto. We were literally just pulling it off the shelf or pulling bookkeeping off the shelf and we were bundling. And when I say bundling, you know, people were, logging into Gusto or logging into the bookkeeping or logging into the different tools because we were three people. And now that we've gotten larger, we have more venture funding, we're able to have one application, we call it one collective, Zara Vision, and they can log into one place and it's easier. And because we have a relationship with you, we can talk about how to change pricing and margins in partnership with our partners. You know, before, again, it was just, hey, let's bundle this, we'll wrap it up, That's a fixed thing. Like that that's the -the off-the-shelf market thing. We're guessing a little bit more. So as we get larger and larger, we have more tools and pricing. But yeah, it was definitely a scary first test because a subscription model for all of these things, some of them are subscription products, some of them are one time annuity. You know, so putting it all together into one price was definitely a big guess.
2: Well, let's talk about your product and where it's going. I know it's being loved by thousands of businesses of one today. Three to five years from now, what is the future of collective look like? How are you thinking about things you're going to expand into and how would you describe your approach to your product roadmap given I could imagine these businesses want to have so many different challenges and how do you sort of think about that?
0: Yeah. So I think first and foremost for us, we want to be good at what we said we we're going to be good at. Right. And so I, we have one investor, a guy named Nikesh Aurora and he was, he's the CEO of Palo Alto Networks, And I won't forget a conversation said early on with us. He said, look at Netflix. He said, Netflix effectively did the same thing for a very, very long time. Right. Of course, they added content and made the application better, but you know, that's all they did. And when you have a large cam like we have, and there's millions and millions of people, you can afford to do that. So it's often tempting for entrepreneurs to run and add products because they can increase their ACV and it's not wrong, but if you do that, then what you're intrinsically saying is my current product ain't good enough. And so we want to get to a point where we're, and we have internal metrics on, we get there where we feel really, really comfortable that we've delivered on the promise of this like automated set for a large suite. Actually, we almost look a lot like a workday or like an ERP type solution over time, right? Well, we have bookkeeping, we have formation, we have tax, right? We payroll with, in partnership with you guys, of course, right? Let's get those really tuned and make sure that. The layer that connects all those things are really great. And I think that's what we've been really focused on for this coming year is that instrumentation and that tuning, because to date, they haven't existed together, right? They haven't operated in concert beautifully and relied on one another beautifully. They've been separate, independent tools, like people logging into Gusto love your product, actually. It's not that Gusto isn't sufficient. It's that they don't know how it fits in with the rest of their workflow, right? And there's a lot to build there. That's focus area one. I would say when we feel comfortable that we are delivering there, areas of expansion are almost limitless, right? Where we hear back from our customers, they want to keep saving money, right? We call it peace of mind that pays, right? So an area that also hits your taxes, but also is something that will increase your net worth is, you know, you look at solo 401ks or 401ks. So you have like this ability to take out money pre-tax if you have separate IRAs and clean up a potential solo 401k and that lowers your tax basis because you can take it out for. And then also you need to do it anyway, right? Like They're going to save for that. So people say, hey, that fits the mantra. Can we add that in? We think about insurance, right? And you guys discovered this when you're doing payroll for people and those customers are willing to trust that oftentimes, hey, can we have some sort of health insurance? The horrible thing for a lot of these people is you're in California, you have to go to Covered California and it's like 30, 40% more expensive than if they worked at Google or Twitter. So They're immediately starting at a disadvantage when they're working for themselves relative to working for a large company. But we, as a large "quote unquote" employer, can give them that benefit. And again, you're very conversant in this and know this better than we do because you offer that. So going into that and helping them with insurance is something that they request as well. Versus banking and so on and so forth. But we look for things that are natural adjacencies that already touch the product that we're doing that that we're helping advise them with, and that they're asking us to have a deeper, firmer. Hand in because it already fits into the conversation. But again,
2: you are only going to do that. Do you that. ever feel the pressure to go more specific to, and I'll use the word freelancer just as an example here, or a creator versus saying, hey, no, we really see this as a horizontal platform for businesses. More. Do you ever feel that need to they in order to do a better job to reach the real estate agents, let's go? reach the real estate agents? Or how do you think about that? Because sometimes in order to capture that, you have to go more vertical. Like, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, it's something we talk about a lot. And I think we look at it not as pressure, but as opportunity. So the number of applications that we have relative to our membership is 40 to one. So 40 times more people apply than our members today. And that's actually increasing. And I think probably in part because of the unfortunate circumstance in the economy. When you look to 2008, when there was the downturn, the freelancer economy or the business and one economy skyrocketed. You looked at incorporations and impacted SMB as well. Like you had more people having to go into business for themselves out of necessity. People who were already in business were getting, you know, some more business from enterprises because they weren't hiring full-time people. The enterprises said, hey, I have the work, but I can't make the bet that I can have a full-time person. I'll have to go with contingent labor. And so we're fortunate that in our current go-to-market supports, that horizontal. But what our point of view is, like my mom, again, is a good example. She was a psychiatrist. My cousin is a lawyer. The more we can tailor the product to their needs, the better. Now, bookkeeping is bookkeeping is bookkeeping, you know, and the taxes and so on and so forth. So we're lucky. There's much, again, like gusto, payroll is payroll, right? And so what we're looking at, and now we're examining for the coming year and go forward is how can we, from a go-to-market packaging perspective, make sure that, okay, hey, we can have our content and education be specific to them so they understand the benefit to, let's use realtors as an example, a realtor. So they land on the collective.com backslash realtors. And then can we make sure that the questions we're asking them are more specific to realtors so that they can speed up towards that? And look, if there are modules or p- pieces of it, truckers is a great example. Truckers, we get a crazy amount of demand. And uh little known fact is that you know most truckers actually have businesses of one. They own like one truck, maybe two or three trucks. Like that's the tail. So we spoke with Convoy, which is one of the companies I had invested in. We didn't know that. That was an insight that there were so many of these folks. And that's not just Convoy. That's worldwide, I guess, actually. And so they may actually need certain modules in addition to what we have on the horizontal. But that doesn't mean that they need what we have. Plus, not I need something else. And so because of that, we're going to take a very measured approach like we do to everything and say, hey, which of these just needs more content, a more tailored approach, versus which of these need some additional modules like mileage tracking as an example, you know, or different feature sets. But today, so what we found is for a lot in business of one, the use cases are 80% similar, which again, puts us in the position where we want to stay at least horizontal from a build perspective for the near term.
2: Just to switch gears, and thanks for sharing a little bit about all your product strategy. I've been curious about your journey going from investor to back to entrepreneur. I mean, I know you are an entrepreneur in the past and you've had success. You know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that are early in their company building, they're building solutions for small and medium sized businesses. Tell us about advice you would give to founders, early stage leaders that are building companies in this very early market of building software for small businesses. And I know you're focused even in the micro area. What advice do you have for businesses that are serving these smaller and sized businesses? I think in particular, with this type of segment, in our segment, one of the
0: reasons that we've found success on our go-to-market and others is know your customer and the segmentation. And I credit my co-founder U, with this because he spent a lot of time doing hundreds of calls. He was a designer by background to really understand who we would start with. So we were very methodical. I mean, we start in one state, California, and we started in a very specific outcome level. You know, we were like, if you're making between roughly a hundred thousand to 400,000, we started with knowledge workers. So that means no sales tech. And he just kind of trailed off and found, okay, these are the folks that we think we can serve. And then we built the product specifically with them. Now over time, we've gotten, again, we're going to more states, we're increasing our income thresholds and all that. But that starting segmentation is what gave us insight and the ability to say, you know what, actually... If we would have gone broader, so I'll give you an example of segmentation that could have misled us in your current strategy. And we would have let people on who are just starting a business, which is an amazing opportunity and they need help, right? So people will say, I just started my business, my income is zero, or it's like 10,000. They do probably need to form an entity, right? But they don't need an S corp; They could just have the LLC. They don't need to take the election. They might not need payroll, right? As a result, because they're just doing their LLC. So they need a much simpler product. But the churn on that, because the failure rate for someone who's brand new is different than the failure rate for someone that's been in business for three or four years that actually is over $100,000. And just that one element, like we wouldn't have done all the things that we did and we would have gotten very conflicting feedback on what to do with respect to product. If you just look at income segmentation, right? We wouldn't have had payroll. We wouldn't be talking right now. You know what I mean? Like it's those choices that will inform that roadmap, but ultimately- You'll have more traction if you sub Look, Oftentimes, I think this is we even sub enough. And we had like all these different criteria. You I mean, to your point, we could have gone vertical even harder. We did vertically go to market, right? We had developers and designers were the initial. Then that was a marketing position. It wasn't product specific. But again, we've been very lucky that other groups like coaches, consultants, marketing, they don't need something different than what a developer needs. That's just happenstance. But that was not by design.
2: I know that can be scary, you know, early stage companies to really be focused because, you know, there's always this pressure on growth, growth, growth. What advice do you have for our listeners that are struggling with this? Like, it's not growing as fast and they're starting feeling a need to expand that segment because it's slow going. I mean, imagine this was true for you all. It was slow going. Like, how do you know to stay the course versus? expanding a little bit more? Like, what advice do you have for them? Because I'm sure this is true, especially for the vertical SaaS leaders that are kind of getting some early traction, but they're like, should I go to an adjacent segment or should I just stay to the core?
0: There's two guardrails. So on one end of it, you have your TAM, maybe even you can call it your SOM, like what's your serviceable market, right? So if your belief, and in our case, our belief is that it's so large, is that that's large and that's one guardrail. The other is okay, your early performance within that segment. So in theory, like, let's say we have like 4 million high-end businesses that can work with our current product today, Collective, at least, out of this millions and millions of millions, right? So we can always go down market, not market, but we would have to do some changes to our product. And so I look at that and it's, okay, well, that's one guardrail, right? So could we grow faster? Yes, but then the question is, how efficient are you? So there's a scale, but then there's efficiency on the other guardrail. And so you have to look at, and you have to ask yourself, honestly, is my problem with growth an efficiency problem or is a scale problem? So efficiency meaning not just like CAC and abstract. I think there's this like, it's dangerous. And it happens with a lot of investors who only know consumer or only know enterprise. They'll either push you for too low of a CAC or too high of CAC based on their pattern recognition. That's irrelevant. Payback period, which is you get your gross margin times how much you make in a year. And you say, okay, well, how long does it take to pay back that amount of money? That's a really great measure of efficiency, right? So typically if you're under like 12 months, you know, you're in the six, 12 month range, sometimes six can be too little that or LTV CAC, right? So let's say the LTV CAC is above three, let's say even at four, if it's above four, I'm like, you're not spending enough, actually, you're not hitting the scale. So if you're in that range and you're like, Hey, you know what? I can get more market share. Like I would challenge, are you actually efficient? If you're efficient, then the next question is, do you have more scale? And you have to do that research. Because oftentimes some of these founders are, oh, I need to expand and that'll solve my problem. Because if your segment's already big enough, then you have an efficiency problem. You just don't want to address the efficiency problem. I would say the only time you add a new vertical is if you said, hey, look, we had a sum and it's so narrow and we are too efficient and like we have 10% of it, 20% of it, right? Okay, now you you might want to consider that was a segmentation issue. It's hard. It's really hard. And I would say just in this market to be real life, I mean, dude, it's crazy out there. Your investors today are not the same investors they were tomorrow. I'm talking to the same heads. The people that were like really, really chill in January are the really, really tough PE looking investors in December because the economy has changed. So entrepreneurs, I think the tool that you have to communicate and keep things calm is the data. And you have to look at those metrics and moderate the conversation. You know, It's not just about a quick discussion. You really have to agree on the metrics.
2: Maybe we can close on this now. There are hundreds I'm seeing of new businesses, startups that are coming out that's serving the small and medium sized business, and you know we're seeing new startups in your category. We're seeing sort of vertically integrated solution. You know, putting your investor hat on, it's a new economy, and you know you talked about data being using data. What tips do you have for those founders that are about to raise money in the next 12 months? And it's what's really important. For those founders to communicate or those leaders to communicate? And what do you think the investor is really looking for when they're evaluating that company, that segment, and that founder, the sort of intersection of those three areas? As an investor
0: and an operator right now, my unique perspective here is what's happened in the market is, and we've seen in the public markets, the public markets have adjusted violently, right? So when you look at the multiples, so whether you look at P, PAG, Revenue, they're all halved the at least, right? You have great companies trading. So, what happened is companies that were doing crossover funds, they did public and private investing, Pick Tiger Global, for example, or Code Two, are moving. Like you can buy a public company versus a pre IPO company. It's totally liquid. It's trading a multiple that's at, that was actually lower than the multiples of the IPO. So, what happened? All of those companies now are either doing layoffs, they're repricing their stock. You sign Instacart, for example. Reprice. So that phenomenon has gone all the way down market. Companies at our stage, for example, are now feeling that crunch capital is getting more expensive. Interestingly enough, the seed segment, it's still pretty expensive, actually, believe it or not. So we're seeing post money valuations still in 20s, even though the A's are falling. And so it's it for a founder, actually, you have a unique opportunity to raise capital. Now it's there's still a lot of demand because a lot of investors who are multi-stage firms like Andreessen index and what have you are going down market because they're afraid of the later stage. They're afraid of that next round. So they're saying, okay, I want to go to someone that by the time they raise, or they're going to be unaffected, they have a longer horizon, but the result is there's almost like an oversupply of capital and seed. So I would say that from that vantage, they're in a good position, but you will end up falling into this new economy pricing when you go do an A or B or C. Right. And so what I would say is just be very, very careful with your capital Set very tight goals around it. And you want to build a company that's efficient. So don't build to the old cost structure in the old economy. So you may get the price, you may even get the capital, but the great companies I've seen, first time operators, second time operators are being very judicious and they're saying, okay, I have 15, 10 people, 10 devs. Like one of our companies, Range, has done a great job of this. And the founder was ex Convoys, a friend of mine, Fahad Hassan you know, they're very conscious of their burn and Graydon came in and they have like years and years of runway. So what he's done with the capital is he's used this, hey, I can raise the money, right? But he's actually funding it in a good conservative way so that he can build up that case over three years. He has multiple plays because in your early stage, you're going to have- How
2: important is the story aspect or is it all about the metrics now? And everyone's like, hey, I got to get a millionaire RR, or what's traction really mean in this market? companies that are raising series A and series B. And is the story because in a lot of these cases, the market size, especially in the vertical markets, there could be a question like how big is this market and so forth. Clearly you yeah. were to overcome that. But everyone uh, that I speak to is saying, is there a difference between 500K versus a million versus 2 million ARR, Or is there other metrics that matter that investors are looking at differently than they did even two years ago, even 18 months ago?
0: Yeah. I think we could do a whole nother show on that together. But I would say, yes, it's changed dramatically. So dramatically again, that you would want to have a whole discussion around it. But what I would say is this for the seed side, it's going to be the founders. It's going to be the narrative. It's going to be the story, the market you select. So as an example, generative AI is having its moment. You've had a dismal year. Everyone pulled back on investing. I'll send you this category that's growing like crazy there's so much money sitting in the silence, So what's happened? Because there's an oversupply of capital. There's a like hot space that has very few companies. The valuations are so, so high, right? I would argue that you're going to see a lot of zeros and a lot of ones, or to use bowling nomenclature, a lot of strikes, a lot of gutters, because these companies are getting funded at like hundreds of millions of dollar posts with no revenue. So you know how that game ends. Some of them are going to do fine because they have so much capital, but the majority of them won't because they're set up from a capital perspective that the next round could be most likely be down round if they have one at all. But if you're in a normal category, if you're in a normal space, I would say that, again, storytelling, founding is good. The A's and the B's has the numbers have changed a lot. But what I would encourage is you don't just look at a million AR, two million AR without context. That is no longer applicable because like I could have a million dollar AR company, but the growth rate is phenomenal. The efficiency is phenomenal. Burn rate is phenomenal. And people are now looking at burn ratio very heavily, which they never did. And enterprise, a magic number, right? And that I'd rather wrestle than a 2 million, but that 2 million company is growing 5% per month. You know what I mean? So I think now entrepreneurs have to be more sophisticated and look at what is the system I'm selling? There isn't one or two vanity that set of is going to look at because the time for diligence now is expanded. It's not like you're seeing things like, oh, you know what? I have three days. Tiger was sending term sheets over a weekend. So when the time for diligence expands, when people are being smarter, you have to look at your whole system that you're selling at the series A and B versus before. It's like, hey, you know what? We're in this category. We're million. We're get founders. No. Well, what's the context around that million? Is it high growth, high efficiency or something like that? And so that again is like, I think a longer conversation you can discuss, but this is going to be the time, this advantage that comes out in the next two years are going to be phenomenal. Like the companies that get through this will be phenomenal because they have to think across their whole business holistically in a way that they didn't last five, 10 years ago. Like in the last recession, you had to know your numbers look crazy. So that's what I would encourage entrepreneurs is just say, you have to be a student. You have to be a student and understand your business at the physics level
2: here. Well, Uman, thank you so much for your time today. I know we covered a lot of things from the market that you're in, the product that you build, built, but also what's happening in building technology for small and sized businesses and what entrepreneurs have to sort of think about. Before we wrap up, I know that given all the topics we chatted about, I'm sure there's other folks that would love to connect you. If folks want to reach out to you, what's the best way they can reach out to you? Do they go to Twitter or do they go to LinkedIn? Do you want to give out your email address? What's the best way to... They get in contact. Sure. My name is Human Radfar,
0: H-O-O-M-A-N-R-A-D-F-A-R. So it's very simple to find me, just at Human Radfar on Twitter. Find me on LinkedIn or my first name at collective.com. So happy to try to provide advice. I love hearing from entrepreneurs. I always try to
2: respond, even if I my response is I don't know, but I do my best. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for today. There's a lot of things that Human mentioned today, including you know learning more about Collective And the products and services that they offer, there will be links to any resources mentioned in today's show. So thanks again for listening, everyone, and keep a lookout for the next episode. Thank you, Eman. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you
1: for listening to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com.